welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and it's a bit of an unusual taping today because real life events caught up with what my second guest was saying. In fact, as he was talking to me, Royal Caribbean was making an announcement that would turn the cruising world topsy-turvy. Basically, Dr. Vincent Gupta, my second guest, was talking about how he thought the cruise lines should probably create a two-tiered system for passengers, uh, one tier for vaccinated passengers and one tier for passengers who were either unvaccinated or refused to share that status. It was kind of a way to wiggle around the new laws put in place in Florida and Texas that say that no business can require a potential customer to reveal what their vaccination status was. So probably at the very moment, Dr. Gupta was telling me his thoughts on what Royal Caribbean should do and the other lines. Royal Caribbean made this chattering announcement, very important announcement. You'll read about it, if you want, on Fromers.com. So I I just wanted to start the show (laughs) saying that Dr. Gupta was prescient and that what he is discussing in our upcoming interview is what's actually going on now. So know that as you're listening. But we're going to start with another topic, which is what it takes to bicycle that massive distance that is Route 66. On the line, we have Michael Sean Comerford, who is a journalist and also an adventurer. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Michael. Hello, Pauline. So last February, at the height of the pandemic, you decided to do something very adventurous. You decided to bike the length of Route 66. Where'd you get that notion? Well, I mean, this is a, there's a couple themes here to this story. One is the journalistic side, and the other is the travel side. So I'll, I'll start with the journalistic side, and we can go to the travel side a little bit. Uh, but, Great. You know, the main part. It came to me because a couple of, a few years ago, I had a dinner with, uh, with uh, Paul Salopek, a two-time Pulitzer winner for the Chicago Tribune. And you he, keep good uh, company. <laughs> he, and I talked, he and I talked about slow journalism, and mm. he is on a current uh, slow journalism project for National Geographic called Out of Eden Walk. He's walking on the uh, migration of humankind, that uh, tracing the human uh, route from Africa through across Asia and down to the tip of South America. And it's he's now eight years into it. I had a dream in February about low journalism and ab- about COVID. It was mm. at that moment, it was... There was a polar vortex going across the United States. I don't know if you remember it. It was freezing up all the uh, electricity in Texas and throughout the Midwest and South. And then I ducked that, but I left shortly thereafter. It was still snowing. Snow was piled high all around Illinois. And my idea was to go along this 
uh, main, so-called Main Street of America and ask people five-minute conversations about COVID and ask them mm. how they're surviving it because most people aren't dying of COVID. Most people are surviving it. And and how are they doing it? Through the stories they're telling themselves and adapting, just like human beings have done since the beginning of time. And yeah. so I have over 100 interviews on my uh, web on my YouTube site called The Story Cycle, Americans in a Pandemic. And uh, I'm going to write a book about it. And hopefully I'm going to get some uh, resources for a documentary. And that's that was the whole uh, crux to the idea. Well, before we leave the idea of slow journalism, I think we need to unpack that a little bit. I, I, you know, in journalism, you always hear, if it bleeds, it leads. And so slow journalism, I'm guessing, means you're taking more time to give all the facets of a story, or are you reporting it more slowly? You're, you're taking the time to, to really dig deep. I mean, what does slow journalism I'm mean mo- to I'm you? I'm moving more slowly. Huh. And, uh, and, um, and I want to get people uh, in a little more context. I want to get people who haven't been able to tell their stories before. Everyone has a story. We're all human beings and storytelling apes. And uh, so that is what I wanted to interview people who had never been interviewed before. And, uh, and these short conversations, you get some context because in a town of 12, you hear a man talking about, I don't believe the numbers. There's 500,000 people dead. I just don't believe it. Huh. And I'm going, of course you don't. It's 12 people in this town. And, uh, <laughs> and, and no one has ever had it. And you don't know what it looks like and, and, and so forth. And, and so that was some context. But in journalism, I, I spent most of my life well, all my life as an adult, as a journalist, and I would go with the bleed its lead. What the most articulate thing you say, I'll, that would punch right through to the, to the headline. And, uh, and then I'd talk about facts and then I'd go on from there. But these right. are videos uh, of people talking in that town of 12, in that town of, uh, or in St. Louis, or in, uh, out in the middle of the desert, and uh, mm. and and what they say around that really articulate quote, and and what you can see in the background, and what the in the feel you get there, it's a completely different experience. And well, uh, I love that because I think that you know when you only go with if it bleeds, it leads, then it looks like the world is a very dark place. It you know it looks like there's just crisis after crisis happening. And that's what I love about travel writing. What we write about is how people are living now, how they're dealing with the same issues we have here in the U.S. How do they deal with it in France? How do they deal with it in Thailand? What I hope it does is it maybe lessens the fear people have of other people. Absolutely. Um, And I've seen, I've looked your uh, career up and I've seen you've done Route 66 before and uh and talked about it before and written sure. about it. And uh, it is a living thing. Uh, hmm. These are towns, small towns that have their own culture. And even in the big cities, you see these, own, they have their own cultures all along this road. And you're tying it all together by thematically with a road. And, uh, and it's changed. It has changed since you asked uh, before the interview uh, if I have any tips toward the end, and I do, but um, it's changed 
from when I left in February to now, huh. because <laughs> February was near the height of the death toll yeah. of the pandemic. Yeah. People were dying at a rate of a 9-11 a day. Mm-hmm. And uh, we during that time of my two months of bicycling 2,500 miles along Route 66 uh, and eight states, we surpassed 500,000 dead. We had the one-year anniversary of the pandemic. We're now heading mm-hmm. on 600,000 but yeah. uh, dead. And No, wait, and, it, that's happened. Uh, yeah, that okay, milestone has been passed. Uh, this yeah. week. And then... But we also have had the greatest uh, vaccination effort in the history of the world. Yes, and it's so, been so impressive. And so uh, what was shut down in February, I thought originally I was going to file these stories. This um, project is in cooperation with the University of Florida's oral history program. They're, they're huh. archiving every video and they edited these videos just beginning and end. These are un unedited videos, just the beginning and the end. are. Uh, the, so when I started, uh, I wanted to file these videos from libraries and <laughs> stupidly, uh, but these libraries are not open. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, they were all closed. And so oh, I boy. would have been out of luck. But I luckily at the last moment decided to bring a uh, laptop huh, and uh, right. a really good camera. I, I filed them from these little hotels along Route 66, and I uh, it was an amazing journey. The sad the the uh, the thing I hate admitting was that it was a glorious ride because I loved it. <laughs> well, let's yeah, I want to get into that because when you told your daughter that you were going to do this, and can I give away the fact that you're in your 60s? So you're you told her you're going to bike twenty five thousand miles or twenty five hundred miles, I should say, at, at the height of a pandemic in starting in February when it's you know the snow is coming down. She said to you, "This is going to kill you." Yeah, she said she cried. She she cried and looked at me, cried, and then hugged me and on my chest while tears are coming down her cheeks. She said, I felt like this, I feel like this is going to be a death ride for you. And I, well, I, what a phrase. Oh my God. It it, it broke my heart. And, uh, I'm divorced too. So now, you know, this is another guilt trip I got on top (laughs) of everything else. (laughs) uh, Wow. And so, and I was out of shape. I had just finished the audio book for my last a book, American Oz. Uh, and uh, I was just out of shape and it was very cold. I'm too old. And you were sleeping outside for a lot of this. So uh, to save money, at the beginning, yeah, to save money. Wow. And uh, but also it's part of the experience often for bike riders. And now, is Route 66 set up for people on bikes? I would think at the height of the tourist season, which you weren't doing, you were, you know, in winter in a pandemic. There, there might be too many cars on the road to, to make it safe. Was it, uh, should people follow in your pedal prints? Well, um, this is one of the things about this is that uh, the American uh, Adventure Cycling Association, it's called the uh, Adventure Cycling Association, it has a corridor called the Route 66 Corridors because the Route 66 doesn't fully exist anymore. It hmm. is about 85% of it is road and the rest is uh, interstate uh, or interstate or other roads. So the, these maps that I got through their uh, Adventure Cycling Association tell you about 
uh, places you can stay, hotels, so forth, and parks if you're going to tent or tenting right. grounds and stuff like that. And they also steer you away from high traffic areas. Huh. Uh, however, you do ride on on this on their recommended corridor maps. You do ride on Interstate 40 uh, for oh. a long way, and wow. uh, but you know it is bicycling on a route made for cars, right? And, and a lot of it is old route, so uh, the, there isn't much of a, a shoulder at shoulder. all. Shoulder, and wow. it. it uh, I told my daughter at one point. I didn't know if this was really healthy for me because uh, you're, you, I was breathing in a lot of gas fumes. Uh, I didn't have any trouble with it, and I wasn't afraid. I just, you know, you are going to have to deal with traffic. And and uh, now, I I once took a, a bike trip in in Spain, in in the uh, Basque region of Spain, was right, oh uh, and I thought I was hot stuff because I was doing twenty miles a day or so. Yes. Uh, how many miles would you do every day? Well, it, I started out slow and. Uh, I had um, I had a theory. I developed it the first day <laughs> because a lot, I did decide this on a, from a dream, and I acted on it very quickly. It was the Forrest Gump theory of bicycle riding, and there's a point where he has <laughs> his heart is broken by Jenny, and uh, he decides to keep running. And Jenny mm. asks him later, "Why? I mean, uh, uh, how did you do that?" And he says, "Well, I just ran, and uh, when I got tired, I." I rested, and when I got hungry, I ate, and when I had to go, I went, and so I just uh, went until I was tired, and uh, I stopped. So you always I were able to find a place to stay, or I guess I since you were tenting for part of the time, so yep. so you didn't have to push yourself too hard to get. I didn't, to and the I, next part. I went uh, thirty-five miles the first day, and wow. then. Uh, I would go as little as 35 miles, but I, I went as much as 75. So 35 to 75 to answer your question. And, and I went over some big mountain. I mean, we were going up to 70, uh, 7,000 feet. I went over the, goodness. I went through the snow, through the rain, the sleet, past tornadoes. I went uh, a 50 mile an hour wind, headwinds. Cause you're past heading tornadoes? Past Did tornadoes. you see one in the distance? I mean, what does that they mean? They were in the distance. Okay, and, uh, but still, and, you never uh, know if they could swerve and hit you. I didn't know. I, you know, I can tell you that I, I and I, my bike broke down five times. Oof. I went across the uh, Continental Divide in a snowstorm. It wasn't a storm. It was a, you know, a light snow, but it was snowing okay. and I was going sure. across the Continental That's Divide. That's slippery. <laughs> yeah, and it, but it was so cool. It was like being in a, a snow dome. And, wow. Uh, so it was a it was a bit rough uh, because it was early in the season, and uh, when I hit the uh, Mojave Desert, it was it was hot. It was a hundred degrees, and I hadn't prepared very well. And one wow. of the and uh, I had to be kind of rescued a couple times by passerbys with water and oh, uh, and, oh my goodness. and sandwiches. So at this stage, I have to offer an explanation. Mike was in a library. They gave him a private room, but he broke the cardinal rule of libraries, was too loud, got kicked out. <laughs> so he's finishing this uh, interview in his car. Welcome back, Mike. We'll, we'll, we'll make it work. Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry about that mix up. It's a library I'm not no. uh, familiar with. Yeah, that's okay. That no, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. 
So I was just about to ask about the sign that you had on your bike. What did it say and what was it there for? It was a great conversation starter. I, uh, I put on the back of my bicycle, tell me a story. And uh, mm. people would come across the parking lot to say, hey, what does that mean? I'll tell you a story. In fact, one guy in Missouri, a t- small town in Missouri said, I'll, I know where all the bodies are buried around here. What, what do you want to hear? <laughs> I, I want to hear a wow. five minute COVID story. And he goes, no. And I go, why? Uh, he, <laughs> says, uh, he says, it's going to be all over the internet and I'll be, uh, I'll be ridiculed. I didn't say it that way, but he says, I'll get a lot of BS about it. And so he would tell me where all the human beings are buried, but he wouldn't tell me about his experience with COVID. And But it was one way to get Hmm. people to open up about COVID. And uh, and I got amazing, articulate answers. You got one guy who said he took the dewormer thing he usually gives his cows? In Western uh, uh, Oklahoma, in a town called Eric, uh, no, actually in uh, Canute before uh, Eric. Uh, but in Canute, uh, I met a rancher. He said that uh, he was a, a doubter. He thought the whole thing was overblown. He didn't think it would ever come to his area. He was uh, he, he was very political about it. But when he got it, he thought he was going to die. He regretted every opinion he had beforehand. But uh, he got a call up from his uh, guy that uh, slaughters his cattle. And he says, you know, I know other people that are taking this dewormer that you put on the hide of your cattle and it really, it, your symptoms will go away. And he, he walked out to his barn at 3 a.m., mixed it, wow. mixed two cc's <laughs> with some apple uh, sauce. He drank it rather than put it on his skin. And he said he felt better within four hours. He was breathing better. And within three days, he was without a symptom. He went in and told his doctor, his doctor, he says, I expected to get my butt kicked by my doctor. But uh, the doctor said, I've heard of other people in the area taking this folk remedy. And he says, it has helped them. And how much did you take? Why did you take that much? How did you feel? When did you feel? And uh, he went to his vet. He told his vet the same story. He said, well, the main thing you did wrong was take it in the barn. It's unsanitary. So he goes, here's another <laughs> bottle and it's it's clean. And if someone in your family gets COVID, uh, give them this. And and uh, he said one one thing that uh, really is unexpected from this whole event. He said, I looked down into the toilet and there it was about a foot inch worm was in there. He had oh my goodness. himself and wow. got rid of COVID at the same time. <laughs> As a worm. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, the videos are fascinating. It's fascinating to talk with you. We're having some sound issues. So I think I'm going to, I'm going to say goodbye, but can I get a promise from you? I want you to come back on and tell us about your book, which dealt with your, the period in your life when you were, would it be fair to say, a carny for a year? I was. I, 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 was a, I worked in 10 traveling carnivals in 10 states, from California to New York, Alaska down to Mexico. I hitchhiked. I was living on carnival wages. So well, I that, that's going to be our, places. yeah, that, that'll be our next story, because that's another travel story that I want to hear. Thank you so much, Mike, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a blast. Thank you. Next up, we have Dr. Vincent Gupta. He is a pulmonologist. He's also on the faculty of the University of Washington. Dr. Gupta, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. 
Thank you for having me, Pauline. I wanted to have you on because you have been talking a lot about the ramifications of allowing unvaccinated people on cruises. And it's it's a it's a topic that we've been talking about. And every time I do, people say to me, mind your own business. Why would you why would it matter to you if you've been vaccinated? If somebody who isn't vaccinated is on the ship with you, can you help me uh, unpack why that would would be a problem? Of course, Pauline. You know the, the challenge here is that it, it, it's not in a, an enclosed environment like a cruise, for example. What yeah. we know is that cruises typically have been petri dishes for other infectious diseases, despite people. Uh, adhering to the best infection control measures. And it's not like cruises in the past haven't acknowledged that norovirus or other types of uh, gastrointestinal viruses can easily spread despite the best of efforts. And so the, the, the concern here is uh, if we have a situation that's allowing for an honor system to be mm-hmm. put in place and where, for example, it's it's just... You know, you have to trust that everybody that's unmasked uh, has been fully vaccinated. And particularly given the fact that it's not entirely clear that uh, if you have a cruise that's leaving Florida, for example, that folks who want to take their mask off may be fully vaccinated because there's been such right. division that there isn't uh, there is a burden of proof here that's really necessary that we are in this place as a country where you can't necessarily trust what the individual that's unmasked is doing next to you. And that individual is, if they choose to unmask and they're unvaccinated, are most at, they're, they're risking their own health first and foremost. Sure, right. But we also know that the demographic of individuals that tends to uh, go, go to cruises can be older, potentially even with pre-existing conditions, and that uh, those individuals are still potentially at risk, even if they're fully vaccinated. So if you have an older individual or somebody with pre-existing conditions or an immunocompromised condition, if they're unmasked next to somebody who's unvaccinated and unmasked because that's how they choose to live their life, that unvaccinated person could absolutely be a potential harm to somebody who's high risk but fully vaccinated similarly mm. masked. And so it's all to say that people want to enjoy their vacation. They don't want to be masking in public places. They want to feel safe. They want to feel like sure. everybody around them is making responsible decisions. And, and But that's the nuance here, that uh, one, we live in an untrusting public, public space right now. The public columns is not very trustworthy. It's going to take time. And then two, there's real risk to people that Made to some people that are fully vaccinated if they're exposed again to COVID. Yeah, well, recently on a cruise that was uh, that just went out in the Caribbean, two people who had gotten on board the ship claiming to be fully vaccinated and who had taken a, a COVID test coming up negative turned out to be infectious. I think a, a lot of people are wondering how that could happen. Well, you know, the challenge here is that just because you're fully vaccinated, it does not mean it does not mean that um, you are not, that you're completely immune to being a transmitter of the virus. And right. we know that some certain vaccines are better than others at reducing transmission, but there's still a possibility that you could test positive. So that's that shouldn't be a shock to anybody that that happened on a cruise line. Number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, if you're unvaccinated, you are more 
you're at more risk of dying, of ending up in the hospital from COVID than you were in 2020. And that's because of these more dangerous variants. We just have a supercharged virus that is more risky to people of all ages. It's more transmissible. It's more lethal. So not only is that individual putting themselves at risk, but then they're putting others, again, who are fully vaccinated but but are otherwise high risk, at additional unnecessary risk. Because again, the habits of people that are traveling or to want to be able to relax, to, yeah. to psychologically be able to take off their mask and feel okay about it. I was just on vacation a few weeks ago, and no one wants a mask in humid weather near a pool or on a cruise. Right. Of course. No one wants, no one wants that. But yeah. the fundamental, the fallacy of Royal Caribbean in Florida, at least, is thinking that people will be okay with the paradigm of essentially adhering to an honor system when what's happening in Florida is a toxic mix of health and politics. And and so I think that I think what they're engaging in is short-term thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the cruise ship could have done. Do you think they could have perhaps appealed to the federal government or to the CDC or is this only within the purview of states? You know, I, I do think that there's a possibility that short of getting into some sort of litigious nightmare with Governor DeSantis or appealing to federal health officials, which I don't think any of that would have resulted in any change in the short term, that what Royal Caribbean, what frankly other parts of society should consider doing is adopting, especially the travel industry, if they're not willing to mandate the vaccine, and some places are just not going to mandate it because they're just not willing to go there, then what you need is you need options. And you need good options that keep, make people feel safe. And so if it was me advising the CEO of Royal Caribbean Florida, I'd say, well, if you can't mandate it or you're not willing to take that political risk or have that public fight, okay, that's okay. But then you, what you want to make sure is you have, if, if, you're, if you're fully vaccinated, show us proof, and then you'll get a lanyard or you'll get a green wristband. Mm-hmm. And you'll be allowed to unmask. You'll be allowed to enjoy yourself in public places. If you're not willing to show us proof of your vaccine, okay, that's fine. But you're going to have to mask in public places. And then every other day, we're going to test you because that's what, you know, yeah. it's a high-risk situation. And we're not going to test I- you with just a rapid, rapid antigen test, Pauline. We're going to test you with the latest, greatest test that we have so that we are convinced that a negative is a negative. And that's why you have, need rapid PCR. You need to move away from these rapid antigen tests that are, uh, frankly, just unreliable, especially as we have less case rates across the country. Right. I, I think that's actually an excellent idea. That would be a way to deal with this. One of the other things beyond cruising, I've been reading that while rates uh, on both coasts and in the Midwest tend to be trending down in certain parts of the United States, infection rates are trending up, and those parts tend to be the places where there's a lower percentage of people who have been vaccinated. As a traveler who might be planning a road trip, should I avoid those those states? If you're fully vaccinated and you're not high risk, meaning you're not immunocompromised or you don't have an immunocompromising condition, I'd say no. I, I think you can. That's the whole. That's what we want people to feel. They, we want them to get vaccinated because we want them to feel that they're protected. There are mm-hmm. some exceptions to that. If you've 
a recipient of a solid organ transplant, if you have cancer or recent chemotherapy, you have bad diabetes, you are immunocompromised. And so we think the vaccine is effective in you, but we just don't know for how long. So if you're telling me, Pauline, that that that's you or that's somebody you love, I would encourage that individual to still travel as their, their heart chooses wherever they'd like, but to be vigilant. So to mask mm. in public places like grocery stores or to be very vigilant if they're at a restaurant versus everybody else that uh, sh- should feel free to unmask at their own leisure and as they're comfortable. So you don't think we could get into the situation again where hospitals are overwhelmed? I mean, I, I remember at the height of the pandemic, you didn't travel because uh, you, like I caught COVID, I had it in October. So I had the antibodies, but I didn't travel because for many reasons, but one of the reasons was say I was in a car crash, say something else happened to me. And I was in a place where the the hospitals really needed to be dedicated to COVID. Can we know that that won't be the case again, that, that hospitals are going to still be uh, just having a slow but steady stream rather than an overwhelming stream of COVID patients. Depends on what zip code we're talking about here in the United States, Pauline. <laughs> wow. Um, so it can go by county by county. Yeah, I think it can. And, and what we're going to see is there's three considerations here. What's the vaccine uptake rate in that county? Uh, uh, number one. Number two, to, whatever, to what, whatever degree we do have visibility on this, what are the variants that are circulating in that population? And I think we're going to have to move towards in the coming months an assumption, especially as we get cold, dry air in the fall, winter. Remember, COVID likes cold, dry air. Yeah. That a combination of low vaccine uptake rates, cold, dry air everywhere, and variants, which especially these really concerning ones coming out of uh, the Asia Pacific, that triple whammy is going to hit hard in counties that have not hit an optimal rate of vaccination. That's just a fact. And we need to be prepared for that and be proactive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excellent advice. Thank you so much for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Pauline, thank you so much for having me. And we're going to say goodbye for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Mm -hmm.